Um, let's pray. We're going to get into the scripture. Father, thank you for bringing us together. Uh, thank you for this new church that you are starting. Uh, you're using us. We are, we are your human instruments. Um, but this is your work. Uh, it's not, not ultimately our work. Jesus, you didn't say you will build my church. You said I will build my church. And so you're building uh, this church. I thank you for uh, this morning getting to partner uh, with Trinity Church and for their generosity and partnership with us in the gospel as we uh, are able to, to rent this space from them and to partner with them. And they invited us into that egg hunt. And, and that was a blessing, Lord. And we just pray you bless their ministry this holy week and Easter season. Uh, as indeed you bless ours as well. As we look into the text this morning, I pray you would just open our hearts and minds to what you want us to say, that you would edit me uh, as you see fit uh, for um, the, 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 the message that your church needs on April 14th, 2019. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, one of the coolest things about the Bible and about the gospel is that there's no part of your life that it doesn't address. Not only is there no part of your life that it doesn't address, there is no part of your life that is not radically and completely transformed by the reality of the gospel. Um, this Sunday, what we're going to be doing is we're actually going to be continuing our exposi expositional series in the book of Ephesians. So we ended last week in chapter 5, verse 21, and we're going to pick up right where we left on and off and continue going through the Easter season. But what's really cool is that we're actually entering a new section of Ephesians about relationships. And I just think, how cool is it that in God's providence, we're in this section of Ephesians in this time of year, and how we can see how the gospel changes everything. The gospel changes everything. And that includes your life and your marriage, your kids, your parenting, your employment, your life. Um, the, the gospel changed the entire history of the world. I mean, just a small example, and you, you may have he obviously heard this uh, before, and you may know this and probably do, that the reason we call this year 2019 is because sometime way back when, someone estimated when Jesus was born and said, okay, this is now we're going to call this A.D., that is Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. Because the story of the gospel split human history into B.C., before Christ, and A.D., in the year of our Lord, after Christ has come. The climactic events of the story of the gospel uh, really occurred in a single week in A.D. 30. And we call this week in the church, we call this week Holy Week. We have, every year we have services. We have Palm Sunday services. Um, some churches have what are called Maundy Thursday. That's super confusing because it sounds like Monday, Thursday. Um, but, and just like my, my three-year-old Olivia, everything that happened before today happened yesterday. I said, Mommy, we did this yesterday. Well, it was, you know, we, the, so it's, it's confusing. It sounds like something a little kid would say, Monday, Thursday. No, but it's Maundy Thursday, because it comes from the Latin word for commandment. And, and what that is celebrating is on the night when Jesus was betrayed, every week we celebrate and remember that through uh, celebrating the Lord's Supper and communion, Jesus gave his disciples a new commandment. This is the command, he says, that you would love one another as I have loved you. And so the church for years has celebrated Maundy Thursday, and sometimes would do like foot washings as Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. 
Then on Thursday night and into Friday, we see that Jesus is betrayed by Judas and he is arrested unjustly, convicted unjustly, and then executed unjustly. And we call this day Good Friday. The reason we call it Good Friday is because what happened that day is good news for us. The, the word gospel actually means good news. But the thing is about a good news is good news only makes sense if there's also bad news on the other side. The bad news of, of the story of the world is that God created the world perfect, but people messed it up. God gave people an opportunity for a perfect relationship with Him and with one another, and people decided they wanted to go their own way. People decided they wanted to obey their own desires. People wanted to do their own thing. They ran away from God. They disobeyed God. They rebelled against God. And the Bible calls that word for rebellion or turning away from God or just wanting to do our own thing. The Bible calls that sin. And the Bible teaches that sin leads to death. And sin leads to death. And death happens first spiritually. And spiritual death leads to physical death, which then leads to eternal death death. And this is bad news for us because we can't fix it ourselves any more than a dead person can bring themselves back to life or we can give a dead person life. We need a miracle. And the miracle started on Good Friday when Jesus was offered up as a sacrifice for sin because the wages of sin is death. And we celebrate this every year to remember what Jesus did. So join us again on, on Good Friday and, and hear the story of what Jesus said when he was on the cross. Then Saturday, sometimes it's called Holy Saturday. That's the day Jesus was buried. He was in the grave. It's actually one of my favorite days of the year because we live in a Holy Saturday kind of world. We live in between the, the, the traumatic death of Good Friday and the shocking resurrection of Easter Sunday. We live in a world that seems like there's no hope sometimes. We live in a world where God seems to be silent sometimes. But what we don't see and we don't always notice is what was happening on Holy Saturday is that God was working a miracle in between Good Friday and then on Easter Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead, proving that he truly was the eternal, holy, unique God as a human man. And he was the first blossoming of a new creation and the down payment on God's promise that in Revelation 21 says, I will make all things new. And the book of Ephesians actually has a lot to say um, about this story. Um, now, now, the book of Ephesians was written by a man named Paul. And, and we've talked about this at different points. Paul was a man who was like, he was a zealot, all right? When you would have met Paul, he would have been the kind of guy who were just like, you know you don't talk to Paul if you don't want to talk about Jesus. You know you don't talk to Paul if you don't want to have a spiritual gospel conversation. You know Paul is intense, and he drank his coffee, and he's going to get right in your face, and he might have had bad breath, but he was going to speak the truth to you directly. Paul didn't chit-chat and probably have a lot of small talk, would be my guess. And, and early in his ministry, Paul has fire in his belly for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He literally walks through the Roman Empire to tell people about Jesus all the way from Jerusalem, all the way across Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. He takes ships. He's shipwrecked. He's in prison. He's beaten, all for the sake of telling people about Jesus. And, and then, by the way, we're just a little worried that things might be socially awkward. 
And Paul is like literally getting whipped and imprisoned for the gospel. And we're like, what if they, what if they don't like me? And it's like, it's a little bit of dissonance there. So Paul, Paul's obsessed with the gospel. And in, early in his ministry, one of the first letters, maybe the first ever thing he ever wrote was a letter to a church called the Galatian church. And we call that the book of Galatians. And it's all about the gospel. And then in the middle of his ministry, Paul wrote what was probably the great apex of his, his theological labor, where, where he writes this book that we call the book of Romans, the, the epistle to the church of Rome. It's, it's a long book, and it's filled with the theology and the truth of the gospel. Then at the end of his life, he's a wizened older man who's still in prison for the gospel. And, and now for the first time in his life, He's got a little bit of space. He's under house arrest in Rome. And he's had time to think about the gospel and how it impacts everything in life. And he writes a letter to a church that he had planted about seven years before in a city called Ephesus. We call that the book of Ephesians. And he writes this letter to tell them how the gospel changes everything. In chapter 1, verse 7, he says, In Christ we have redemption through his blood. In chapter 1, verse 20, he says, God exercised his mighty power in Christ by raising him from the dead. In chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, he says, God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him. In chapter 2, verse 13, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In chapter 2, verse 16, he says, He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross. He, pro he came and he proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. In chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, he says, What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens to fill all things. In chapter 5, verse 2, he says, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. And then in chapter 5, verse 14, he says, Get up, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And what we're going to see now in chapter 5, verses 21, 22, through chapter 5, verse 33, is that the gospel radically changes not just our eternal life, but our everyday life. God designed the gospel not just to impact our relationship with him, but our relationships with other people, starting with the relationship that's closest to us, and that's the marriage relationship. And I realize that not everyone in here is married, so you may be thinking, okay, this is not a message for me. It's, it's, it's going to be a message about marriage. But that's actually not true because it's, marriage is not really about marriage. As we're going to see in the text, marriage is about the gospel itself. And so to, to hear a sermon on marriage is not to just hear about your personal relationship with another person to whom you're married or may be married someday. To hear a message on marriage is to hear the message of the gospel. And so if you're not married, this applies to you as much as it applies to someone who is married. In chapter um, uh, 5, verse 21, we see that Paul says that the church should be submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Um, we see that that is actually based on his command in chapter 5, verse 18, 
be filled by the Spirit. We talked about that last week, and if you weren't here, it's on our website and our podcast about what it means to be filled by the Spirit, to be filled by God the Father, with God the Son, by God the Holy Spirit. And that one way we, we, we cultivate the Spirit in our lives, filling us with Christ, is by submitting to one another. We talked about that. Talked about how we, we, as Christians, we can trust one another. We can listen to one another. We, we can even put another's opinions above our own. And now we see in chapter 5, verse 22, that he goes into what this means for marriage. And what we see in 5, 21 through 33 is that marriage mirrors the Messiah's mission. Marriage mirrors the Messiah's mission to bring people to God and bring people together through the gospel. Marriage mirrors the Messiah's mission to bring people to God and bring people together through the gospel. Our first step to finding healthy, joyous relationships is to be reconciled to God. Said so there's bad, the bad news of sin, the good news of the gospel that God sent his one and only son to live a perfect life, to die a sinner's death, to be crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. And the truth is that anyone, you included, right here and right now, who will turn from their sin and trust in Christ will be forgiven and cleansed and, and given new spiritual life. And that is the first step toward any healthy relationship, marriage or otherwise, is to be reconciled first to God. And then the gospel that reconciles us to God reconciles us to one another. And as we're reconciled to one another, especially in the context of marriage, we mirror what Jesus did for us. So first, let's look at the mission of the Messiah in verses 23 through 30. The mission of the Messiah. Jesus leads the church. Jesus leads the church. Christ is the head of the church. The church submits to Christ. Jesus is the authority, the ruler, the leader, the trailblazer. Jesus is the one who sets the tone for the church. Chapter 1, 22 and 23 says, God the Father subjected everything under God the Son, Jesus Christ's feet, and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body. The church submits to Jesus. Jesus leads the church. He sets the pace for the church. He directs the church. And the way he does that is through the word, through the scripture, through the Bible. That's why Cross United Church is a Bible-teaching church, because the way Jesus leads his church is through the Bible. The only way we know what Jesus wants is through the Bible. So we study the Bible. We preach from the Bible. We teach our kids the Bible. We read the Bible. In the F260 Bible reading plan or whatever Bible reading plan you may be doing, we go to the ladies' Bible study if we're a lady, and we go to the men's Bible study if, if we're a man, and we, we, we saturate ourselves with the Word of God. That's why I teach expositionally most of the time, just section by section through the Bible, because we need to hear what God has to say to us. And the only way we hear it, the only way we know how Jesus wants us to live, the only way we know what Jesus wants is through the Bible. Jesus leads the church. Second, Jesus saves the church. Verse 23 says, He is the Savior of the body. He gets us out of the position we can't escape from. We are dead in our sin. And we cannot give ourselves spiritual life. We cannot renovate our spiritual heart. We cannot fix our situation any more than a dead person can 
fix theirs. If sin is like drowning, Jesus is the lifeguard. He comes in and he saves us and brings us to safety. If sin is like choking, Jesus is like doing the Heimlich maneuver. He's doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. We're stuck. He's the savior of the church. Three, Jesus loves the church. Look at verse 25. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. What does love mean? Love is like everybody's in favor of love. Like love is like, if you had to pick something, do you, do you believe in love? Everybody's going to say yes. Now, they're going to mean all sorts of different things by that because everyone loves love, but not everyone knows what love actually means. Well, the Bible teaches and the truth of the gospel teaches us that love means that Christ gave himself for us that he descended from eternal glory and he took human nature and he suffered the indignation of the creator living amongst his creation. And not only, I mean, if I was going to be God, the father sending God, the son to earth, I would have thought, well, at least I'll send him into like the 21st century where they have air conditioning, right? So, but not only was he God, the father sending God, God, the son into the world, he sent him into like this ancient backwoods part of the Roman empire in a, the ancient world, a nowhere land. And, and not only was he subjected to the, to the frailty of being part of the creation, he was actually a low part of the creation because he was ridiculed and rejected, betrayed, convicted, and crucified. This is what it means that he loves us, that he took up his cross and he carried it outside of the city of Jerusalem where he hung upon the hill called Golgotha or the place of the skull or Calvary and died for us. Not only did he lower himself by his incarnation, he humiliated himself in his crucifixion and he gave himself. This is love, is self-sacrifice to the greatest degree. Jesus loves the church. Four, Jesus cleanses the church. Verse 26 said he made her holy, cleansing with the washing of water by the word. Why did he love him, us and give himself for us? To, the, to cleanse us, to sanctify us. The Bible says our best stuff is like filthy rags. Here, here's an example of that. The other day, um, Laura was, I don't know what she was doing. She had something she was doing. She was uh, at a, either a ladies thing for like pastor's wives or uh, she had gone like one day, she kind of took like a day to herself and did like a, like a personal like retreat day, got her hair done and stuff like that. And it was one of those two days. And I got Livy down for her nap. She's our three-year-old. And I was so proud. It went so well. It was so smooth. I had some quiet time. It's just kids are in yeah, it must have been Friday because so, the kids were in school. And so I'm just like, this is great. I got quiet time. She'll probably sleep an hour and a half. 45 minutes later or so, she wakes up. I said, oh, man, she didn't sleep as long as I thought. And, and, but I noticed she didn't come out. She didn't come out to the main room. And I was working on something, so I was kind of not really paying super close attention. Then it had been a minute. I'm like, this, there's something going on here. And uh, I hear her in the bathroom. I said, there's definitely something going on here. And I come in, and now we just, we just potty trained her. She's really good about it. But I went into the bathroom, and she looks at me. She goes, she goes I poo-poo pee-peed in my pants. 
And you know what I did? Got her all, you know, I cleaned her all up, praise God. And I took those pants, and do you know where they went? They went in a Publix bag and in the garbage. Because there's nothing, it's, it's not worth it. I don't know how much they cost. They could have cost $50, but I'm not. That's what your best is like to Jesus. Just holding it out here like this is junk. That's, what you, that's your best. That's like your A game. That's your best. It's like a filthy bag of something. There are small kids here, so we won't say. He had to clean you up because you're filthy in your sin. Number five, Jesus displays the church, verse 27. He did this to, he, so he loved the church and gave himself for the church in order to cleanse the church and he did that so that he could present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. Notice he displays or presents the church to himself. He's not worried about what the world thinks. He wants a holy, perfect bride for himself. Laura and I kind of got sucked into this BBC show called Poldark. Anyone watch Poldark? Anyway, no, okay, good. I'm glad this is going to make a lot of sense to you. So there's this wealthy, like, English gentleman in, like, the end of the uh, 18th century, 1700s, and he ends up marrying his kitchen maid. And this is a big scandal, a big shock in the community. And, and, and he, you know, eventually, like, she ends up being, like, this really amazing woman and, like, is brought into polite society, none of which would have happened if this guy hadn't married her. And that's kind of what Jesus does for us. He cleans us up and he brings us into the most high echelon of society. That is the community of the Holy Trinity itself. And he says, this is my bride. Jesus displays the church. And then number six, Jesus feeds the church. Verse 29, no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Jesus does for the church. How does Jesus feed us? Well, we already, we already mentioned it. He feeds us through the Word. He feeds us through the Bible. If you're spiritually dry, spiritually hungry, spiritually struggling, I want to ask you, when's the last time you spent more than four and a half minutes in the Scripture? When was the last time you soaked your mind with the Bible as much as you soaked your mind with whatever show you happen to be binge-watching on Netflix right now? When was the last time you spent even a fraction of the amount of time filling your mind with the Bible as you do filling your mind with stuff for your work or during the day or whatever it is you fill your mind with as you should during the day? When's the last time you even tithed a portion of your day to the Lord? Now, if you, now again, I'm not really good at math, but 24 hours means that 24 hours, 10% of that would be how much? 2.4 hours. Okay, wow, I could never spend that much time reading the Bible. Yet, you spend that much time or more. Now, and on April 26th, I'm going to be spending 180 minutes at the theater watching Avengers Endgame. So if you can watch, uh, if you can watch, praise God, that they're finally going to end this thing, figure out what happened, you know. Um, if you can spend that much time watching something filling your mind with podcasts or shows on TV? How, how could you not just saturate your mind with the Word of God? Jesus wants to feed you. You're starving. Let Him feed you by His Word, and the Spirit will come in. 
and he'll speak to you through the word. And all of this truth about Jesus, this mission of the Messiah, it topsy-turvies our cultural expectations about how to be married and how to live in relationship. Um, cultures throughout history have been lopsided. There have been many patriarchal, male-dominated, sort of sexist cultures. That is, that is just a fact. And, and then, on the other hand, there's also been cultures that are more matriarchal or feminist, and neither one of these are God's design. What the gospel does is it comes in, and especially in the ancient world, it tells a story of radical subversion. It shocks whatever your cultural expectation is. Maybe, maybe you consider yourself like a feminist. The gospel will shock you. Maybe you consider yourself like a patriarchal, like, you know, Ur. the gospel will shock you with what it calls you to in marriage and in relationships. There's something in this passage that to, that's going to thrill every one of you and something in this passage that's going to drive every one of you crazy and aggravate you and raise your hackles and ruffle your feathers. So I want to ask you to do is just in the next couple of minutes, just approach this text with an open mind. We're not going to spend a ton of time on it. I, most of our sermon this morning has been just laying the foundation of what the gospel does and what Jesus has done. And then once you get that in place, the rest is, the rest is actually pretty simple. So what's the mission of a wife? In verses 22 through 24, and then in verse 33, the mission of the wife is to mirror, mirror the church. The mission of a wife is to mirror the church. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husband as to the Lord, because the husband is... Now, I'm reading out of the CSB, but I memorized this in a different translation, so I may say it differently than it's on the screen. Um, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are submit to their husbands in everything. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. There is nothing more culturally toxic than this truth here, maybe in our culture. I was talking with a pastor friend of mine about how I think men are sometimes afraid um, because, because there's this, this, this idea that you know, they don't want to step on toes and that sort of thing. Here we see this. If there's something in this passage that caught your attention or raised your hackles, it's probably the word submit, the word submit. Um, the baseline reality of a relationship between a man and a woman in marriage is that it's supposed to mirror the relationship of the Messiah and his people, the Christ and the church. And, and so the word submit may sort of be like, whoa, whoa, like what's, what's up with that? Well, first we have to lay a foundation to, real, to realize the gospel means we are equal before Christ. And before God. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. There is 100% equality before the cross of Christ and under the cross of Christ. That means in a church that someone who has $5 and someone who has $5 million are equal before the Lord. Someone who is, you know, 17 and someone who is 77 are equal before the Lord. Someone who has light skin that burns easily in the sun and someone who has dark skin are equal before the lord someone who votes for democrats and someone who votes for republicans they are equal
before the Lord in Christ. And in marriage, a man and a woman are equal before the Lord. So what this doesn't mean is that the man and the woman are different in value. All it means is they are called to a different role. Notice it doesn't say women submit to men. It says wives submit to, and literally it says, to your own husbands. It doesn't say women submit to men. It says wives submit to your own husbands. It's saying that you, in the context of your marriage, are called to occupy a role that God has called you to that mirrors the relationship that the church has with Jesus, and that is that the man should be able to lead. It says, submit to your own husbands, and then it says, in everything. And what that means is there's not an area of your marriage or your life that is sort of like off limits, that, that the other person can't speak into, that your husband can't speak into. Now, I think there's two unhealthy patterns we see in marriage, and we're going to get to the men in just a second. I'm actually spending more time talking to the men, but there's two unhealthy patterns that we see for wives in marriage. And Unhealthy pattern one is passive wives, and unhealthy pattern two is domineering wives. So what this passage doesn't mean is that, ladies, you're like some wilting lily, and you're just supposed to be in the kitchen, like washing dishes and cooking. That's not really what the heart of the text is about. And believe me, I'm married to a strong woman, and she will not let me not let her voice be heard. She, she, she makes herself known, as she should, as she should. We are in a relationship, and I respond to her. I am not Christ. Christ is perfect. I'm, now, she may not realize this yet. Maybe you don't know this. I'm, like, really messed up. And her input is critical. And her, her speaking in and her make, helping make decisions is part of a healthy biblical pattern of marriage. So this is not calling ladies just to be passive, but to participate. But on the other hand, it's not calling ladies, it's, it's, it's kind of subverting a pattern that may be the case, depending on personality, of women who are domineering. And we all know those, we all know those people. It's like she wears the pants in the that's kind of like the cliche, right? She wears the pants in the family. And so this subverts like you don't need to be a wilting lily, but also you gotta let your husband spread his wings and lead. Your husband can't defer to you to, for every decision. You, you listen. If I had been designing our marriage, I would have put my wife in charge of everything, and I kind of, kind of do. I just like I call it delegation, right? Because she, she's a strong, intelligent leader. But we are still called to display the pattern of the gospel, and it doesn't matter if she's smarter than me, which she probably is. If she's a better leader than me, which she definitely is, it doesn't matter. That is not the determining factor. The deter- and she's more emotionally stable. It's just like pretty much everything other is like she's better than me, okay? So like, but that's not the determining factor. The determining factor is that God in whatever mysterious providence decided that I would be a husband and she would be a wife and that I would mirror the Messiah and she would mirror the church. 
And you know what? You know what I love to see is I love to see the gospel coming alive in our marriage when she is willing to let me lead and she's willing to help me lead and be the best man that I can be. And when she grows in respect for me, notice, notice it says, can you go back to the verse there, Tyler? It doesn't say, wife, love your husband. Now, you should love your husband, but it says, wife, respect her husband. The man, like, like, to know, like, I, at the end of the day, if, if nobody else cares and respects me as a man, but my wife does, that's what matters. So ladies, don't be a wilting lily. Don't be passive. This is not an excuse for you to just check out and, and to be, you are to participate. But you also, if you tend to be domineering, let your man, let your man lead. Encourage him to lead. Say, you know what? I think this is a decision you need to make because God has called you to be the, the leader of our family. Third, the mission of a husband. The mission of a husband. Mirror the Messiah. 525 through 30, and then again in verse 33. It's kind of a summary verse of the passage. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water for the word, by the word, excuse me. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that but to be holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of the body. Here's the thing to notice here. The church gets the better end of this deal. And I think in a biblical marriage, if it's living out the pattern of the gospel, a wife should say, I got the better end of this deal because her husband is so sacrificial. Her husband is so willing to die to himself, so willing to die and lay it on the line for his family. The woman, the wife gets three verses. The man gets eight. That's how messed up us guys are and how much we need to be reminded of the high calling of being a man and being a husband. Men, God has called you to mirror the Messiah's love for his church. He's called you to be a man worth following. I think we see three types of ways husbands love their wives in this passage. The first is sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. This would have been radically countercultural in the ancient Roman world in which Paul was writing. Because then men had absolute power in the family. They actually, in, in some contexts, were legally allowed to put their children to death for insubordination. Like, like, like absolute power. It was called the pater familias. The man, the head of the household, had, he, was, he was the king. You know, they say, I'm the, the king of the, the man's home is his castle and king of the castle. Well, that was almost literally true. And so Paul calling men to sacrificially love their wives, was a radically subversive call in the ancient world. Because the man's authority is not absolute, but it is conditioned by the gospel. 
A man should put his wife's needs before his own. He should crucify his own desires and dreams to bring the desires and dreams of his wife and family to life. He should be willing to die, both figuratively and literally, for his family. Second, his love is a sanctifying love. Guys, your wife should love Jesus more because you're her husband. She should live and love like Jesus because she is your wife. That if she had been another man's wife, she would be less like Jesus and love Jesus less than if she than she does because she is your wife. And you encourage her to go to Bible study, spend time with the Lord to cultivate her own heart and her own soul. Watch the kids so she can get her hair done or go to the spa. Do things that are life-giving for her. You should be praying with her, reading the scripture with her. You should be helping her grow in Christ-likeness. Sanctifying love. And then third, satisfying love. You know, the word husband originally meant someone who would cultivate a garden and bring life forth. And, and so, so uh, a man's love for his wife should be satisfying to her. It should be satisfying physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally. Like, if your wife would rather spend time with the girls than with you, there's something wrong. You should be each other's best friends and want to spend time with each other. Now, that doesn't mean that, like, you don't have other friends and you don't do things. Like, that's not what that means. But it's like, if I have to choose one or the other, like, I want to choose time with my husband, she says, because he gives life to me. He nurtures me. He sacrifices for me. And he satisfies me with his love. You should be so delightful to her that she loves spending time with you. There's two unhealthy patterns in the same way for men. Domineering men and passive men. Some men will use the pattern of the gospel to be like a jerk. You say, well, I'm the husband, I'm the head of the household, blah, blah, blah. That's just, that's just garbage. And ladies, if that's how your husband is, let, let me know. And we, he and I will have a talk, okay? And I'm serious, because that's just not the gospel. On the other hand, I think what we see is a pattern in male leadership and relationship is the pattern that's been there since Adam. As he sat back, as his wife talked to the serpent, and he let his wife get deceived and lied to, and she took the fruit, and he's just standing there, and she's eating the fruit, and she's like, hey, you want some of this? Okay. Passive men are a plague in this world and a plague in a marriage. Being a sacrificial leader does not mean being passive. It means leading in the way that Jesus led. So my question is, if you are married, what kind of mirror is your marriage? Does it portray a clear picture of the gospel? And if not, what are the ways where it might need to change? If you're not married... If you're not married, well, maybe someday you will be married, or maybe you have been married. Maybe you're thinking about a marriage that didn't go the way you had hoped it would. Or maybe you're looking forward to a marriage that you're hoping will be what you hope it will be. And the reality is the gospel speaks the same truth to you, that God's grace is enough for you in a past failed marriage 
and God's grace will be enough for you. And the gospel that's true for people who are married is true for people who used to be married and people who are not yet married. Maybe for you, you need to take that step for the first time to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need to turn from your sin today and trust in him and find the new life that he offers to you. Maybe you know you just you know that you can't do this marriage thing alone and you need other people involved and you, and you, you feel like you're drowning and you need people you can trust. Well, to, 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 to find people you trust, you have to start building those relationships. So maybe, maybe you know the next step for you is just connecting in a deeper way to Christian community. On that connection card I mentioned, there are all those ways that you, maybe God is calling you to respond. Maybe there's something that's not written there that you feel in your heart. God is calling you to respond in some way, to repent and believe the gospel again in some way. I just want to encourage you, just take a second. Just take a second. Say, God, what are you calling me to do in this moment? In light of the gospel, to repent of my sin and trust again in Christ. And that's the call. Whether you've never done that or whether you've been a Christian for as long as you can remember. God, what do you want us to do? Father in heaven, May you have the reward of the suffering of your son in a church that is pure, like a bride waiting for her groom. Lord, we just, we pray our marriages would mirror that. We pray our, we would walk in the grace and the hope of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.